Finally, I met with Dr. Rich Goldberg for a quick run-through of papers in GI cancer, and he began by commenting on an EORTC randomized study evaluating the benefit of radiofrequency ablation combined with chemotherapy for unresectable colorectal liver metastases. This is an interesting study. We're all wondering whether some sort of debulking procedure in patients with unresectable liver mets can be of value to them. And, of course, you can debulk these patients with a gamma knife or a cyber knife. You can debulk them with radiofrequency ablation, or you can surgically debulk them, or some combination of those things. And this was a forward-looking trial, and this group was among the first to study this issue. They randomized patients with unresectable disease up to 10 metastases in the liver to either systemic therapy or that systemic therapy plus radiofrequency ablation. They aimed to recruit about 150 patients. They actually didn't get that many. They got about 120 patients. And what they showed was that in terms of the percent of patients who were alive at 30 months, it was good on both sides of the equation. So the chemo patient percent alive was nearly 60%, and radiofrequency ablation added a little bit to that, up to about 64%. So it didn't really seem as though this made a huge difference in outcomes for these patients. But I think it's a groundbreaking study in that it showed us the value of doing studies in this patient population. What, did they try to RFA all the lesions or the big ones? They did. They tried to RFA all the lesions. Hmm. Ten RFAs is a lot. What did they see in terms of complications? They did see some complication rate, but it really wasn't dramatic. There was one patient who died, and no patients died of chemotherapy, and there were a few patients that got infections or hemorrhages, but it was 10% or less. How about 3501 presented by Dr. Tabanero, the macro trial? So the macro trial was an interesting study in that it started patients off with capecitabine and oxaliplatin plus bevacizumab and then randomized them to continue on the three-drug program or to drop back after six cycles to bevacizumab alone. And it was a non-inferiority design powered to try and prove that stopping chemotherapy continuing on Bev was as good as continuing on chemotherapy and on BEV. It was a relatively small study for an equivalent study with about 240 patients per arm. And the bottom line was that there was not proof of non-inferiority in this. The differences in outcomes, however, were pretty minor with really only about a two-month difference in median overall survival in favor of continuing the chemotherapy. The other finding on this was that 1,000 milligrams per meter squared of capecitabine proved to be too toxic to a lot of patients, as we have known in the United States, and therefore I wouldn't necessarily use this same regimen without dose-reducing the capecitabine in clinical practice. What would you see as the clinical implications, and how do you manage these patients to start out with a chemobev for metastatic disease? So it's an interesting question, and I don't think that anybody has a right to be dogmatic about this. I have a tendency to evaluate every patient individually, and I manage patients with minimal disease quite differently than I do those with bulky disease. Those with bulky disease, my preference is to continue them on continuous chemotherapy plus a biologic. 
And that particularly goes for people who have peritoneal disease, because I'm always worried that their first progression is going to be catastrophic. In people with minimal disease, I think it's perfectly reasonable to either take a break from chemotherapy, as long as you watch the patients carefully, or to keep the patients on bevacizumab. Of course, the data that we're using to continue bevacizumab, at least before this time, had come from retrospective studies. It would have been very nice in this study to have had a third arm, which was no chemotherapy and no biologic therapy, but that wasn't done here. I guess we sort of indirectly have data on that from one of the Optimox trials. Right. But again, that was a relatively small trial, and I don't consider that data to be definitive. You know, again, I can't stress too much the need to really look at patients individually. And, you know, the risk of somebody who's got minimal disease with nine or 10 lung nodules and four or five liver nodules all under the size of two centimeters getting away from you if you take a chemo break is really pretty low. And as we all know, busman's vacations are not as much fun as real vacations. Just like we should leave our blackberries at home when we go on vacation, the patients would like to leave their chemo. Anything new in the adjuvant setting? What's going on with a new CLGB trial? So the CLGB study is going forward, and to remind you of what that is, it's a two-by-two randomization looking at three versus six months of Folfox and celecoxib or no celecoxib. And the data from this study will be pooled with trials being run in Europe and in Great Britain in order to get a very large sample size to really answer the question about the three versus six month of chemotherapy. And that study should be opening within the next several months. So there were a couple presentations about the intergroup trial N0147 by you and Steve Alberts. Can you talk about those two papers? Sure. So we split this into two because we wanted to focus first on the entire group of patients and then just on those patients with the KRAS mutations. And what this study was was a randomization to Folfox plus or minus Cetuximab. Initially, before we really knew about the importance of KRAS testing, it took all comers. But once we found out about it, we restricted enrollment to only those patients with KRAS wild-type tumors. And we did an analysis of all patients, of patients who were KRAS wild-type, and of patients who had KRAS mutations. And the bottom line was that there was no value to adding cetuximab overall to the entire population or to the population just with KRAS wild-type tumors. And there actually was an unfortunate decrease in outcomes when cetuximab was added in the over-70 age group. Now, the more startling finding was that in the KRAS-mutated patients, there was actually a statistically significant worse outcome when patients who had KRAS mutations received cetuximab. And we wouldn't have predicted this. We would have said, well, you know, in those patients, cetuximab should neither hurt nor help. But it appears that what happened in this circumstance was not that the cetuximab severely reduced the doses that patients got, but instead that somehow or other interfered with the efficacy of the chemotherapy. And that's something we don't understand, but something that we sorely need to understand 
The good thing is that we did have tumor block requirements as a requirement for enrollment. So we have tissue on the vast majority of these patients that we can hopefully use to help unravel this finding. Okay, let's talk about some other papers in GI cancers outside of colorectal cancer. There were a couple in esophageal cancer I wanted to ask you about. One was abstract 4004 looking at chemoradiation therapy in resectable esophageal or esophagogastric cancer. Right. So this is a phase three study conducted by our colleagues in the Netherlands. And one of the things to point out about it is that it accepted both stage two and stage three patients, but the majority of patients on this study were actually node positive. And also that there was a mixture of squamous cell patients and adenocarcinomas, but only 23% of the patients on this particular study had squamous cell histology. So it was a group more typical of what we see in the United States than the group I'm going to talk about in the next study. Patients here were randomized to chemoradiation therapy with the 5-FU carbo chemotherapy regimen followed by surgery or to surgery alone. And like the three prior randomized studies, the University of Michigan trial, the Irish study, and the CLGB study, this trial showed an advantage in terms of overall survival with a hazard ratio of 0.67 in favor of pre-op chemo RADs. And just to put that in perspective, three-year survivals were 48% for surgery alone and 59% for chemo RADs plus surgery. Median survivals 26 versus 49 months. So this adds to a growing body of evidence that pre-op chemo RADs is the right thing to do, particularly for patients with node-positive disease. How about the paper 4005, looking at surgery alone versus chemoradiation therapy followed by surgery for localized esophageal cancer? So this study came to exactly the opposite conclusion. And this included esophageal and gastric cancer patients. It was a small study, 195 patients. Patients were randomized to surgery alone or to 5-FU cysts with 45 gray, followed by surgery. Now, one of the things to point out in this study is that almost 70% of the 100 patients per arm were squamous cell cancers. And also about 70% of patients were stage 1 or 2A with about 30% of patients stage 2B. So this was an earlier group of patients who were not node positive. And what this study showed was no benefit to pre-op chemo RADs in this group of patients. So what it suggests to me is that you do want to do endoscopic ultrasound evaluations to look for nodes. You want to sample those nodes if possible. And you want to clearly give pre-op chemo RADs to your patients that are node positive, but I think that it's discretionary in the patients who are node negative. How about in gastric cancer? Unfortunately, we didn't have a TOGA trastuzumab trial this year, but there were a couple papers I wanted to get your take on. One, 4007, which looked at capecitabine and cisplatinum alone or with bevacizumab. Right, so this was the first study that I'm aware of, at least looking at bevacizumab and gastric cancer. This is a study that's known by the acronym AVAGAST, and it's one we've been waiting for for a very long time. The study was mainly conducted in Asia and Europe, and there actually were subset analyses done because there were different outcomes depending on the area of the world where the patients originated. 
This included stomach and GE junction. It required that patients have metastatic disease. There were patients with a relatively good performance score. There were close to 400 patients per arm. What this showed in terms of overall survival was that the addition of bevacizumab added about two months to medium overall survival. The p-value was not significant, 0.1. There was about a 1.4-month difference in progression-free survival in favor of bevacizumab, 5.3 versus 6.7 months. There was not a lot of toxicity, despite the fact that about 30% of patients had had no gastrectomy in this study. So we didn't see a lot of bleeding problems reported or other problems related to bevacizumab. Interestingly enough, the findings relative to site of origin, the majority of patients were from Asia. The Asian patients with no bevacizumab lived about a year, with bevacizumab about 14 months. In contrast, the American patients lived about seven months, and bevacizumab increased their median survival to 11.5 months, still not statistically significant because of the smaller number of American patients enrolled, but quite different outcomes depending on where in the globe you have your national origin. There was another bevacizumab paper in gastric cancer, abstract 4019. This is looking at it with pre-op chemo. So this is a study in the adjuvant setting coming from the group in Great Britain that's done so much work with ECF, and it didn't give any results. It just gave safety data, and it was perioperative ECX with or without bevacizumab in patients with gastric or esophageal adenocarcinoma. And again, the bottom line conclusion on this is that the Data Safety Monitoring Committee and the individuals who were involved in the trial felt that there was no safety signal that should interrupt this trial or make investigators or patients feel uncomfortable about its completion. So where are we in terms of bevacizumab and gastric cancer? Is the book closed? I don't know that the book is closed, but it's only open a little bit. It would seem unlikely to me that most physicians would hop onto the bevacizumab wagon with regard to gastric cancer on the basis of the Avagast study. And I would be very surprised if very many of the countries would find their regulatory agencies approving the use of an expensive drug with that modest benefit. We also have better regimens now in gastric cancer that are resulting in 12 to 14-month median survivals without the use of bevacizumab. Where are we one year after the TOGA study in gastric cancer, particularly in terms of how the U.S. cooperative groups have looked at it? Are there new trials being planned? What are people doing in practice? I think people are testing in advanced disease for HER2 new overexpression. It only affects about 20% of patients, but when I find it in a patient, I do use Herceptin as a part of my chemo biologic regimen. And what about trials? There are a number of trials on the drawing board, but nothing that I'm aware of that's actually come to fruition. How about pancreatic cancer? There are a few papers there I wanted to ask you about. First, 4010, comparing a couple different first-line regimens. So this was actually arguably the most surprising study to be presented in the GI colorectal and non-colorectal programs. It uses fulfirinox, which, as you'll remember, is a pretty intensive treatment. 
It uses full dose 85 milligrams per meter squared of oxaliplatin, 160 milligrams per meter squared of areno tecan, and standard doses of 5-FU. In this study, it was compared to gemcitabine given in the standard way from the Burris paper. And the reason that this study was done was based on a promising phase two study that showed a 32% response rate in the fulfirinox arm compared to an 11% response rate in the gemcitabine arm. And the investigators felt that this justified going on to a phase three trial. Now, this study included only patients who were really fit. It was 171 patients per arm. The median age was 61, but all of the patients were either performance score zero or one, with the exception of one patient. And you would want that to be the case when you're looking at using such an intensive chemotherapy treatment. The toxicity was greater, obviously, using three drugs rather than one. And the particular issue that was most noticeable was a 5% febrile neutropenia rate compared to a 0.6% febrile neutropenia rate with gemcitabine. And then there was more in the way of vomiting, fatigue, and diarrhea with three drugs versus two. Now, the results, however, make it worth considering this in your patients who you think are robust enough to take it. What I mean by that was that there was a 32% response rate compared to 9.4% in the gemcitabine arm. There was a significant progression-free survival difference, 3.3 months in gemcitabine, 6.4 months in fulfirinox. And the most startling result, instead of a 7-month median survival on gemcitabine, an 11.1-month median survival for the patients who were treated with fulfirinox. So this is really the first positive phase three study that we've had in pancreatic cancer that's been meaningful in a very long time. And I've already incorporated this into my practice. I recently saw a 48-year-old who was very fit and did well on Folfox. He had a bilirubin of eight, so I couldn't give him gemcitabine. And when I came back from ASCO, I added a Reno-Tecan to his regimen. What's your experience been, or I'm not sure how much experience you have with this regimen in terms of quality of life? I think it's a compromise for people. You know, the nicest thing you can say about gemcitabine is it doesn't knock people down. This regimen is going to be associated with toxicity, and I think as you talk to your patients about it, you have to discuss the trade-off that they're going to be making between chemotherapy toxicity and the possibility of life extension. What about 4036, looking at GEM plus capecitabine and the biologic doublet of BEV and erlotinib? So this was an interesting phase two study that said, let's do a chemotherapy doublet and a biologic doublet and see if we can develop a regimen that has some potential utility for advanced pancreatic cancer. There were only 44 patients enrolled in the study. The regimen was capecitabine plus gemcitabine and bevacizumab plus erlotinib. So a complicated study that required patients to get treatment days 1, 8, and 15 of a 28-day cycle. The patients that were enrolled, again, were very good performance score, 0 and 1 predominantly. They did have substantial toxicity, diarrhea, hand-foot syndrome, stomatitis, not much in the way of febrile neutropenia, 
and there were some venous thrombotic events, as you would expect. The response rate, however, was better than we'd expect with gemcitabine alone at 23%. This is really just a preliminary report, and so we don't have good data to know how to compare this to. There were some durable responses seen. The median progression-free survival was eight and a half months, and the median overall survival 12.8 months. But again, these were carefully chosen patients, and it would remain to be confirmed in a phase three study. In light of the full FOX series study, there may be more interest in that regimen than in this regimen among treating physicians. How do you utilize erlotinib in your practice off-study in patients with pancreatic cancer? You know, I offer it to them. I tell them some of the downsides of it in terms of toxicity and expense, and I also tell them that there's a modest benefit associated with it. I would guess that maybe one out of four patients opts to take it under those circumstances. There were a couple of papers in hepatocellular cancer. I wanted to get your take on 4026, which looked at TACE and serafinib, something I hear a lot of questions about, and 4008, which was a phase three study of Oxali plus 5-FU, Lucavorn, Fulfox 4 versus doxorubicin. Right. So taste plus serafinib is an interesting idea because you're using mechanical debulking followed by a pharmacologic intervention. And this was a relatively smaller phase two study with about 100 patients enrolled. And it did show a pretty high CR plus PR rate of almost 50% with some dramatic responses seen. Adverse events were generally mild to moderate and what you'd expect with the acute effects of TACE and then the more chronic effects of serafinib. And the investigators, I believe, will be pursuing a phase three study to look at this combination in greater detail. It's really sort of a logical extension. We're not curing anybody with TACE. Are there any situations where you'll use this strategy off study? Well, that's an interesting question. I think that there would be potentially a circumstance where I would consider it. If I had somebody who is fit and who was interested in trying to push their survival. How about the other paper looking at full FOX4 versus doxorubicin? So this was a study done in Asian patients that randomized patients to standard full FOX4 versus what's considered to be one of the standard treatments for hepatocellular carcinoma, which would be single-agent doxorubicin every three weeks. About 185 patients per arm. These were generally patients who were in pretty good shape but were not candidates for surgery or transplant. They had to have a good performance score and be child pew stage A or B. What they did was recruit patients in Asia, so mainline China, Korea, Thailand, and Taiwan, looking at overall survival and progression-free survival. These were young patients. The median age was about 50. They were predominantly male, as you might expect. They were predominantly child pew A, so a fit group of patients. And most of them had received TACE in the past, but there was a requirement that they not have had any chemotherapy. The bottom line was that the overall survival for the doxorubicin standard arm was about five months, that for the full FOX arm, 6.4 months, progression-free survival, a paltry 1.8 months for the doxorubicin, and 2.9 months for the full FOX. 
So this isn't the answer to the prayers of people with advanced hepatocellular carcinoma, but may be another option to consider among patients.